Well, hello there. It is great to see you and welcome back to another installment of Closing Arguments. I'm your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. Boy, is it great to have you back with us. We've got the star of the show, Mr. John Razumich or Jack Razumich, as those close to him know him by, uh, joining us momentarily for another criminal law-related discussion. But you knew that already because you are a frequent listener and viewer of this show. Uh, but hey, look, I want to take one quick moment to acknowledge just those that are jumping in and joining us. They're coming in now here on the Facebook live stream. Uh, first and foremost, thanks for joining us live. We appreciate you being here. One of those great perks of being a live viewer or live listener on this show uh, is that comment box right below. So feel free to drop a comment or a question below as we're going through our conversations, whether it be this episode or, or future live streams. We always love to hear maybe where you're watching us from uh, or any questions that you might have on the topic at hand. We'd love to dive in uh, and explore your question because, hey, while Jack and I always have a great conversation on here, sometimes some of our best conversations come from you guys, our audience. So please, if you are joining us on the Facebook live stream, drop a question or a comment below. We'd appreciate you. Uh, but for the other group, those that might be jumping in after the fact on YouTube or a podcasting platform, all the same, we do appreciate you being here and joining us for another discussion today. Uh, we would love to have you back with us, maybe on a future Facebook live stream. And if you need any details on those as to when they might be coming out, you can always head over to the Razumich and Associates Facebook page. Plenty of information on the show you can find over there. But anyway, hey, look, we had a great conversation teed up for you today. We'll be bringing Jack on in just a moment. Today's theme, uh, and Jack and I were just chatting before the show here, might end up actually even being a two-part episode, depending on how much we get into today. There's a lot to unpack in this great conversation today. What are we diving into today? Well, we're getting into the forgotten legal landmarks, specifically United States versus SHIP. Now, when Jack and I were planning for this episode, he had mentioned this particular court case, and I was scratching my head. Probably like many of you out there, what is this case? Why? I feel like I should know something about it. Well, that's okay. Luckily, we've got Jack today to bring on and, and dive into what is really a prominent case, but yet forgotten at the same time. Why? Luckily, we've got Jack to shed some light on that, provide that background, really get into the, the nitty gritty of this case, just why it's so important here today. Uh, so that being said, let's go ahead and bring out Jack. Let's get this conversation rocking and rolling. Jack, great to see you. Welcome aboard. How are you doing today? I'm surviving. We all survived 2021, first show of 2022. Um, still writing. I'm actually writing December on my correspondence. I'm not writing 2021. <laughs> I've got the 2022. I'm just still in December mode for some reason. So. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. I am very, so there have been a few times where uh, where I've marked 21 on some things, like a check you got to cancel, right. you know, those kind of things. <laughs> well, either way, glad, oh, glad you're here with us, Jack. Uh, I'm excited to kick things off here in 22. We've got a great conversation on tap uh, for everybody today in United States first ship. But, uh, you know, as you had pitched this to me for for a topic that we were going to talk about i knew that there was going to be some research that needed to be done on my end because i didn't know much about this case at all but i think you know in in the research that i've done as well as just talking with you about this particular case the devil is in the details particularly those details being the background really of this case take us back to the beginning talk to me about really where this all stems from is this idea of the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. I think that's where it all really begins here with the United States first ship. Take us back, talk to us about this idea of the original jurisdiction. Sure, absolutely. And for the benefit of anyone that's listening, normally we would not do this. This is this is a his, this is a legal based podcast, a legal based show. Um, 
history is not always very nice. I will give anyone who is listening either live or listening after the fact, uh, I will give you a little bit of a content warning. This particular case, the history of this case that, that we are dealing with today, does involve, um, for lack of, I mean, there's really no polite way of phrasing it. There is a lynching that's involved. And I do know that um, rather than ambush anyone who's listening to this uh, with that information there at the end, we're going to be very upfront about it. We will treat everything as respectfully as we normally would. But uh, in the interest of full disclosure, um, it is probably one of the um, of the shows that we've done to date. It definitely does have that sensitive aspect to it. Um, the case itself, United States versus ship is, is a fascinating historical artifact. Um, it is, what makes it most noticeable, it is the only original jurisdiction criminal case that was argued before the Supreme Court of the United States. And what that means is courts have two types of, of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the ability to hear a case. There are two types of primary jurisdiction. You will have what's referred to as original jurisdiction, which is the case can be filed directly into that court as an original action. The other type of jurisdiction, which is what appellate courts traditionally have, is uh, what's referred to as appellate jurisdiction. Appellate jurisdiction means that another case operated as the trial court, and that case made a decision and then that case went up through the appellate system and, and the courts that made those appellate decisions are, are exercising what's referred to as appellate jurisdiction. Uh, Supreme Courts, both of the uh, several states and of the United States, Supreme Courts do have original jurisdiction over certain matters. And with regards to the Supreme Court of the United States, the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States is spelled out in Article 3, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. It states that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. And if you look at a lot of the really, really early Supreme Court cases, most of them are things like, you know, Massachusetts versus Delaware or Indiana versus Kentucky or Ohio versus everybody, because there's an awful lot of litigation over <laughs> who controls the Ohio River. Um, but those are cases that are filed originally directly with the Supreme Court. Most cases reach the Supreme Court through the appellate jurisdiction. Uh, one of the earlier episodes that we did, we talked about what happens after a conviction. Those appeals are what are referred to as appellate jurisdiction. So what makes United States versus SHIP so unique is out of the, gosh, um, 240-ish years of existence that the Supreme Court has, has been a thing. Mm -hmm. This was the only original jurisdiction criminal case that was filed directly into the Supreme Court. Um, and it's it's got all the traditional trappings of an original jurisdiction criminal case. There are defendants, there are attorneys, there are uh, 16 people standing in front of nine justices pleading not guilty. It, 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 it's, a, it's a fascinating history. Um, and, and there is precedential value to it. Uh, even though this case is decided in 1909, there are aspects of this case that are still important 
the way that we approach uh, certain types of criminal cases today. So it, it does have importance. It does have mm-hmm. um, continuing value, but it's it, it's it, it really is. It's very forgotten. It's it's a yeah. small blip in the history of the court's jurisdiction. And there's there's a lot of criminal attorneys who don't even know about this case, which which is absolutely yeah. fascinating. But right, uh, it was it was one of those things that we were able to kind of, um, we you know we kind of unearthed it when we were doing research and going over topics, and it seemed like a great mm-hmm. concept to share with everybody else. Yeah, isn't it fascinating, Jack? Just thinking that a, a case with such history behind it is still leaving you know a footprint today, and then to take that concept and couple it with the fact that it is kind of a forgotten case is just equally as fascinating. So let's get into the, de- you know, the details really of this, of this case. Talk, uh, talk to us about the assault of Nevada Taylor. That's really where things begin. Uh, walk us through it. Right. Like I said, the, the case that we're talking about, the official designation, the, the decision by the Supreme court was issued in 1909 the case itself actually starts in uh, 1906, uh, more specifically January 23rd in 1906. So we're, we're recording this on January 18 of 2022, so almost uh, 100 and 112-ish years ago, I think. My, mm-hmm. my math is terrible on that, but we're almost to the date of, of this case, the genesis of this case. So what happened is in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on January 23rd in 1906, um, a young lady who uh, was a bookkeeper at a grocery store by the name of Nevada Taylor. Uh, Nevada Taylor was a 21-year-old white woman who was living there in Chattanooga. She was on her way home from work at approximately 6 p.m. Um, she took the electric trolley towards the home that she was sharing with her father at the time, which is at the base of Lookout Mountain, if you're familiar with Chattanooga or, or the Tennessee geography, generally speaking. Um, and this is, I, I suppose, this is our, our second um, opportunity to kind of provide a, a trigger warning to anyone who's listening to us or content warning to anyone who's listening to us. Um, it's about to get really dark really fast right off the cuff on this one, because what happens is... She she gets off of the trolley maybe about 6.30, 6.40-ish, something like that. Uh, she gets off of the trolley, and very quickly after getting off the trolley, she's basically ambushed from behind. Uh, she hears footsteps running up behind her, and before she can turn to do anything about it, um, there's a leather belt or a strap or, or something goes around her throat and starts choking her. And according to her reports to the police, she says that a man's voice whispered in her ear, if you scream, I will kill you. And she passed out from lack of oxygen. She was basically being strangled, so she passes out. And about 20 minutes after that, she wakes up. Uh, you know, She knows that she has been in, uh, you know, she knows that she's been assaulted. So she, she runs uh, the hundred or so yards to her house where his father is, where her father is. And uh, they use a newly installed telephone. Cause again, remember that's how old this case is. Telephones were uncommon, uh, but they had one of the few telephones that was in the area and her father used the telephone to call uh, Sheriff Joseph Ship to report that his daughter had been assaulted. 
And that's really what started this process right off the cuff is you have you have an assault of of a young woman uh by an unknown entity Mm -hmm. and um you know things kind of continue to go downhill from there is perhaps the easiest way of phrasing that so so we have we have this unidentified individual that's come up from behind nevada taylor Mm -hmm. more or less strangled her Right. We have nothing. We have nothing else to go on here in this case yet. Talk, right. Take us through. Take us through the next chapter, if you will, Jack. This idea of of really where the identification and then, of course, the arrest of Ed Johnson comes into play. Right. You know, like Ryan pointed out a moment ago, there's nothing else to go on. This is this is pre forensics. This is pre CSI uh, fingerprinting as a concept for identification. This is all relatively new stuff. So like most investigations, this investigation was very heavily put together on the concept of um, if you saw something, say something. They had to rely a Mm -hmm. lot on uh, on public support, uh, public involvement to kind of, again, just address this is, you know, this is what I saw or this person is suspicious. So what ends up happening is, you know, again, it's 1906. It's a small town. Chattanooga was not that big back at the turn of the 20th century. It's still not a, a huge metro area. It's definitely bigger than it was back then. Um, but this is this is effectively the crime of the century for Tennessee. And the next day, what ends up happening is the local press coverage starts calling the attack on Miss Taylor the most fiendish crime in the history of Chattanooga, which is probably correct to be perfectly honest. And the Press is the entity that really started inflaming the tensions on this because, uh, again, remember, Miss Taylor was attacked from behind. What she knew is that she heard footsteps running up towards her. She feels the leather strap around her neck, and she passes out because she's been strangled. This is what she knows. What the press has added into it is the press has decided that this crime was committed by, and this is a direct quote from the paper, uh, the crime was committed by a Negro brute. And uh, the press's justification for that is kind of like your no true Scotsman fallacy. There is no decent white person who would have committed this crime. Clearly it must be uh, a Negro brute. Um, and that's what they ran with. And, and once the press got its teeth into the idea that the perpetrator was, was a black American there in Tennessee, there was no further investigation. They just started looking in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it got worse because on uh, January 25th, two days after the attack, uh, Sheriff Ship, uh, Judge Samuel McReynolds, who was the, the county judge for, for Chattanooga, and the governor of Tennessee, William Cox, the, 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 the Tennessee governor at the time, offered a reward of $375 for anyone who could identify the attacker. Now, that's $375 in, in 1909 money. That's over a $9,000 reward. It's probably closer to $10,000 given the rate of inflation right now. Um, but it's it's about a nine to ten thousand dollar cash reward for anyone who could identify the attacker. 
So what happens next is uh, an, an itinerant, I don't know if you would call him a, a bum or the town drunk or just someone who is habitually unemployed, uh, mm -hmm. by the name of Will Hickson showed up at the sheriff's office and he told the sheriff that he saw a black man by the name of Ed Johnson carrying a leather strap near the scene of the crime about the time that it took place. So the identification is made by an unreliable, habitual, unemployed drunk. There's where Mr. Johnson's troubles began, because at that point in time, all the attention focuses on Mr. Johnson, who really should be the central focus of the story at the end of the day. The case is called United States versus Ship. Um, anyone who's listening probably picked up that Ship is the name of the sheriff. We'll explain how he ended up getting attached to it. But Ed Johnson is really the important part of this of this story. Um, mm. Ed Johnson was was a 19-year-old um, kid, for lack of a better way of describing it, who had, he dropped out of school in fourth grade. Um, which was pretty common, unfortunately, for for not only not only black people, but also all sorts of people. You know, it's it's not exactly a very well off area. So dropping out of school at that age, you know, that was that, that was a very sadly common thing. Um, he couldn't read, he couldn't write, uh, and most importantly, he had no criminal record. That's that, that's again something mm. that I want to be very clear about. You know, even though he drops out of school at basically 10 years of age, over a nine-year period in the Deep South, he doesn't have a criminal record. He's never come across the law in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing that he's ever done wrong. There's nothing he's ever been accused of until mm -hmm. right now. And yeah. and and Ed Ed's uh, you know during the day he's he does odd carpentry jobs. For local churches he tended pool tables at a bar um called the last chance saloon which is right there on the on well it was i don't think it, it's not there anymore it's right there on the sure. border of Tennessee and chattanooga so you know he's he's a he's just a normal guy yeah it doesn't have the resume so yeah. to speak you know that's that's really interesting to hear that uh so uh, all right so so here we are we've got ed johnson enters scene as primary suspect based on the work or the word rather of, of what seems to be the town drunk. Uh, the case is called United States versus ship. Mm -hmm. Why is Sheriff John ship name on that case? Talk to me about his role in all of this and where, and where it starts shifting towards ship. Well, it starts shifting towards ship much later in the story. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Yeah, there's a let's lot not get too far needs ahead. to be discussed with Ed Johnson. But sure. the reason that it's it's Ship, whose name is on the case, is Sheriff Ship is one of the defendants in this case. He is one of the people that is charged with a criminal offense directly before the Supreme Court of the United States as a result of what happens in this case. Um Ed Johnson, unfortunately, will not live to see the end of this case. I guess that's our, our advanced spoiler on getting ahead of it, but because he's not there um, and Sheriff Ship has something to do with him not being there, mm. um, that's why he that's why his name is attached to it. Uh, criminal cases 
um, as 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 a general practice, uh, criminal cases are always brought in the name of the the prosecuting agency. Um, in Indiana, it's criminal prosecutions are brought in the name of the state of Indiana. Um, in California, they're brought in the name of the people of California. In the United States federal system, of course, it's brought in the name of the United States versus whomever the defendant happens to be. Getting back to Mr. Johnson, which is which is really, again, as I said, this I, the, probably the most tragic thing about this story at the end of the day is, again, that is forgotten because of of Mr. Johnson as much as anything. He deserves to be remembered on this. He he deserves to have his um, what he went through memorialized a lot better than it has been. Um, and, and for right now, we'll at least kind of keep that that focus on him to kind of give everybody an idea as to to what was sure. going on. Um, so based off of the strength of what Will Hickson his identification based off this completely unreliable identification sheriff ship arrests johnson and if you'll recall one of our earlier episodes when we talked about the miranda advisements we're like 60 years almost before miranda's a thing so you know mr you know ed ed johnson excuse me mr johnson is taken to the police station he is interrogated non-stop for three hours he's not made aware of any potential uh constitutional rights that he has he doesn't know that he he gets the presumption of innocence that he has the ability to ask that a lawyer help him any of those things so he's just constantly interrogated non-stop for three hours despite that though he manages to maintain his innocence for the entire three-hour ordeal he never breaks once. He very much just sticks with the concept that I didn't do this. He is very adamant that he is an innocent man. He provides an alibi. He claims that he was at the last chance saloon all night, and he provided names for a dozen different men who could substantiate that alibi. So this isn't even a situation that he's coming up with something out of whole cloth. He worked at the last chance saloon. He said that he was there the night of the attack. And he gives the name of a dozen different patrons who theoretically in his mind can say, yes, we saw Ed that night. He was working. Um, whether, you know, I, I, it's, it's unclear from the record how much Sheriff Ship actually bothered to investigate that. The, the record's a little bit unclear as to what Sheriff Ship did do with regards to just verifying whether the alibi was correct or not. The one thing that Sheriff Ship did do that was actually decent in this entire story is knowing that the press has basically inflamed all of the passions of the town um, by coming up out of whole cloth that a black man was responsible for this attack. The sheriff has now arrested a black man. A white man has pointed the finger at this particular black man who's been arrested. Sheriff Ship did one of the only good things that he he did in this case. Um, believing that Ed's life was going to be in danger if he was held in Chattanooga, uh, the sheriff and Judge McReynolds secretly moved Mr. Johnson to a jail in Nashville while he was awaiting trial. So they did move him, which turned out to be a, a great decision. It probably saved Ed Johnson's life at that time. 
because over the next two days, there were three separate raids on the Hamilton County Jail in Chattanooga by about 100 townspeople. Wow. All with the attempt of trying to get into the jail to get Ed Johnson with the concept of lynching him before he even made it to trial. And so, this is and and Jack, this is a town that's been fueled by the by really the press. Absolutely. That lynch that you know they really just locked their jaw, like you had said earlier, on that idea of a Negro brew. It, I mean, it's it's been fed by the press for so long. To it's now reached that boiling point. So it is interesting to hear you say that that Sheriff John you know Ship had, had made that what was a really good call in that moment. Man, I mean, uh, yeah. So so sorry. Continue. I just wanted to say, boy, is that interesting just to hear that Ship made such a good call despite not knowing that the town might boil over like it did. Maybe he did, but he, he had to he had to have suspected it. Again, remember mm -hmm. where we are. We're we're in sure, the south. Sure. Um. And, and that's and that's the fascinating thing with the history of some of the stuff is again remember this is 1906. Mm -hmm. There are people alive who fought in the Civil War at this time. You know th that the, the the timeline is not so expansive mm -hmm. that this isn't a recent memory. Reconstruction has only been over for about 20 years. Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the case that that legally enshrined segregation, that case is maybe 10 years old. So the idea that we might have a lynching if we keep Ed Johnson here in, in Chattanooga, you know, you probably didn't need a crystal ball for that. Yeah. And like I said, it was, it was literally the only humane thing that Sheriff Ship did during this case. I want to be very clear mm -hmm. about that. Um, he is not a good person. Um, this was about, you know, even bad people can make the good decision occasionally. And, and at this point in time, he is at least taking Ed Johnson's safety seriously. And they do move him to Nashville while they're waiting for the trial, um, which is a protection on that. Sure. So sure. the next time, the, the next time, the, the next major thing that happens with this case, you know, I, I, and again, this is this goes back to one of our earlier shows about the concept of how fast and speedy trials work and how things used to move very quickly. Mm -hmm. Remember, Nevada Taylor's attack is on January 23rd. Um, Ed Johnson is arrested two days later on January 25th. Wow. Ed Johnson is now brought in front of Judge McReynolds on January 28th for his arraignment. So we we have an investigation that has lasted five whole days on this. That's wow. all the investigation that went into this. We've got five days from the attack to mm. the arraignment. So uh, Ed Johnson is is brought back uh, before the before Judge McReynolds in Tennessee in Chattanooga. And Judge McReynolds announces that he's appointing two lawyers to represent Mr. Johnson. Normally, that sounds great. You know, not only are you getting one lawyer, you're getting two. And he's not being made to pay for it. You know, because again, this is this is pre this is pre Miranda. This is pre uh, Gideon versus Wainwright. That's another case that we'll talk about at some point in time in the future. But that's the case that guarantees representation if you can't afford it. Um, so in the Deep South, in Reconstruction era Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, Judge McReynolds is appointing two defense attorneys to represent a black man in an alleged crime against a white woman. Sounds great, right? The problem is 
neither of those lawyers had ever handled a criminal case in their entire career. So oh two goodness. attorneys, two attorneys who have never handled a criminal case are suddenly dealing with what's literally the crime of the century for Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know, so that's that's kind of against stacking that he like against you. Fortunately, um, there was a third attorney by the name of Lewis Shepard, who was a former judge and one of the most respected lawyers in all of Tennessee, stepped forward to volunteer his services at no cost. Because, you know, even in stories like this, there are always good people who are at least going to stand up and say, wait, this is wrong. Let me fix this. So because uh, Mr. Shepard is, is the most experienced of the three um, and, and because he's actually handled criminal cases, um, he quickly becomes the lead attorney on this case. And, mm-hmm. um, and he, he shows up on January 29th to offer his services. And on that day, Judge McReynolds meets all three attorneys and he advises them that Ed Johnson's trial is going to be in 10 days. And, and part of that is, again, you know, we've just had two nights of attempted storm. Well, I guess they really did technically storm the jail. They didn't get into the jail. But you've got two nights of, of people storming the jail, trying to do a lynching. Um, Judge McReynolds' concept is, again, uh, although looking at it from completely the wrong direction, his, his concept is like, this town is not going to be safe if we don't get this done. So they set the trial in 10 days' time, which... Um, Mr. Shepard very correctly argues that it would be impossible to prepare an adequate defense in 10 days. Um, you know, again, think of, think back to one of our earlier, our, our uh, might've even been our first episode, that whole concept of how long it takes to prepare a case to mm-hmm. properly handle yeah. that. You know, imagine being a defendant and having your attorney told by the judge, uh, you get 10 days, 10 mm. days and it's go time. Yeah, um, that's, so again, that's horrible. That's that's what fast we're dealing and speedy. With. Some might say fast and yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> fast and speedy. Not particularly yeah. fair and equitable, and we'll get to that portion of it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely moving it quickly. And um, you know, again, to his credit, Mr. Shepard is doing everything he can in his in his ability to extend this process to build a defense. Um, Judge McReynolds, according to affidavits that were signed by, uh, by Mr. Shepard during the federal portion of this case, according to Mr. Shepard, Judge Reynolds at one point in time told the attorney specifically, don't file a motion to continue the trial because I won't grant it and it's only going to make me angry. Um, as you can imagine, this is not really what you want to hear from a judge. You don't want to hear a judge tell your defense attorneys, don't file this motion because not only am I not granting it, I will hold it against you. That's effectively what he's saying. So the next thing that Mr. Shepard does, again, just trying to make sure that he's doing everything that he can to properly protect Ed Johnson, asks to move to move the trial anywhere else in the state of Tennessee. That's a procedural move um, that's referred to as a change of venue. Uh, A change of venue is an argument that's made by an attorney, usually a defense attorney, although sometimes prosecutors can make this argument as well. It's an argument that it is impossible to impanel a fair jury in this jurisdiction. We need to move it elsewhere. And um, 
Mr. Shepard is arguing um, quite persuasively that there have already been two lynching attempts in Chattanooga. There has been a sensationalized media attention on this case. And those two things combined, it would be impossible to find an impartial jury. Um, I don't think that I'm giving anything away by saying that uh, Judge McReynolds was not interested in that either. Um, the statement in Mr. Shepard's uh, affidavit was that Judge McReynolds indicated, uh, don't file a motion for change of venue. I'm not granting that either. So again, very much, you know, we have we have justice theater is the easiest way of putting it right now. We have a situation mm -hmm. where, you know, the judge has initially appointed two attorneys, which looks great, but those attorneys have never handled a criminal case. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the concept of for the safety of Mr. Johnson, uh, we need to move this trial very quickly. So you get 10 days, no continuances, because I'm not granting them. And mm -hmm. in the face of two attempted lynchings already and sensationalized media coverage, which, again, the media coverage is why they think a black man's responsible for this attack. Political so, theater was a really, a really elegant way of putting that there, Jack. But, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Talk about the deck being stacked against you if you're Ed Johnson from from the start. Yep. So, Jeff, yeah, February 26, 1906, that is the day that Ed Johnson's trial is actually set to take place. And that's where the story picks up from there is, is with the trial itself. Right. Um, so to our audience, I mean, see what we meant by, you know, this episode potentially being a two parter. There's so much that does go into all of this before we, we can really get into the trial. Then of course it's aftermath and you know, where the Supreme court enters, you know, there's just a lot to get into this. And then of course, Real quick, Jack, before before we really dive into Ed Johnson's trial and, of course, his later conviction, uh, just a quick reminder to anybody that is with us live here on the Facebook live stream today, please leave us a comment or question below. We'll carve out some time to address that uh, You know, at any point throughout the show. We appreciate you being here. But uh, that being said, Jack, let's get into it. Talk, to, talk me through what the trial of Ed Johnson looks like and how the deck continues to be stacked. It looks like... An absolute clown show is, is perhaps the most polite way that I can phrase that. The jury itself, well, the trial itself, uh, it starts on the morning of February 6, 1906, 10 days after Ed Johnson's arraignment. The jury is composed of uh, 34, 34 white men were summoned for jury duty that, that day um, back in 1906. Um Blacks were very much being systemically excluded from juries. They were not allowed to sit on a jury. Uh, women were also not allowed to sit on juries at this point in time. So um, the jury is made up, the, you know, the jury veneer is called. You have 34 white men show up. 12 of them are selected for the jury. Um, the state's first witness is Nevada Taylor. And remember when... The attack initially happened, and the report was initially made to the sheriff. Uh, Miss Taylor told the sheriff, and she told the law enforcement authorities, that she didn't see her attacker. She couldn't identify her attacker. She had no idea what 
description of her attacker was. So that's that's her mindset on January 23rd. We're now on February 20 February 6. So so not even a full month later um after walking the jury through the events, the district attorney asks Miss Taylor if she can identify the man who assaulted her. And in, in a scene right out of an old courtroom drama, according to the trial transcript, um, she points her finger directly at Ed Johnson and says, I believe that he is the man. So that's that's the strength of the in-court identification from the alleged victim of the offense is, is I believe that is the man she pointed at Johnson. The state's next witness is Will Hickson. Uh, if you'll recall, Will Hickson is the man who claimed the $375 for identifying Mr. Johnson. He repeated the same story that he told Sheriff Ship that he'd seen Mr. Johnson carrying a leather strap near uh, the crime scene at the time of the attack. But what, and this is, and this is, again, this is how good Lewis Shepard really was because on the limited amount of time that he had to prepare, and this is, this is in the days before things like depositions, uh, automatic discovery, things of that nature, Lewis Shepard was still able under cross-examination to establish that Mr. Hickson was actually nowhere near the scene of the crime charged at, uh, no, nowhere near the scene of the crime on the night of the attack. In fact, um, rebuttal witnesses that were called by the defense testified that on the day the reward was announced, which uh, the reward was announced two days later, the day the reward is announced in the newspaper, um, they saw Mr. Hickson walking by a church where Mr. Johnson was repairing on a, repairing a roof because that's what he did during the days. He worked for churches. He worked as a, as a carpenter. Um, Mr. Hickson walks by the church, sees Mr. Johnson, um, casually finds out who that individual is. And within an hour of learning Ed Johnson's identity, he goes straight to the sheriff and says, that's totally the man who, who I saw with a leather strap near the attack. Wow. It's very, very clear to anyone who's looking at this with a degree of impartiality that this is a complete setup. Ed mm -hmm. Johnson's not the guy who's responsible for this attack. Um, the trial, of course, unfortunately still continues because that's, that's just how stuff went back in those days. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I cannot stress enough how excellent of a job that Lewis Shepard did with regards to building the defense under incredibly complicated circumstances because the defense called 17 witnesses in total in Ed Johnson's case, including the dozen witnesses who swore under oath right. that Ed Johnson had been at the last chance saloon. Like I said, it's unclear from the record whether or not Sheriff Ship bothered to look into that. Mm -hmm. Lewis Shepard absolutely did. And Lewis Shepard sure. found those 12 people and he brought them to court and they all testified that they saw him on the day of the attack. The trial itself lasted a total of two days. So deliberations start on February 8, 1906. And this is where things absolutely go off the rails. If you thought that stuff was crazy up to this point, it gets worse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wouldn't you think that it's possible for this to get worse, but it gets worse. So Take what we have, yeah, exactly. What, what we have in modern times these days, um, modern juries have the ability to ask questions of witnesses while they're testifying. Um, they can, they can ask questions of the witness to kind of get clarification for, uh, earlier testimony that's been provided, um, questions that maybe the defense attorneys didn't ask that the juries think are important. In this particular set of circumstances, the jury was allowed to act a little bit more akin to um, what we would refer to as a grand jury situation where the jury is allowed to in engage in a little bit more questioning. So during the deliberations, the jury asks that Nevada Taylor be recalled to the witness stand specifically for the purposes of answering questions from the jurors. So Nevada Hicks, sorry, Nevada um, Taylor gets Taylor. recalled to the witness stand. And, and, and we have, this is, this is, this is all recorded fact. This is all, um, you know, these, these, these trial transcripts used to be taken down by hand. Stenographers would sit there, they would write the questions. Uh, you would hope that they were writing them correctly. Obviously there's not really any recording equipment except for pen and paper. Uh, but according to the trial transcript, one of the jurors asks Nevada Taylor, uh, Miss Taylor, can you state positively that this Negro is the one who assaulted you? Answer, I will not swear that he is the man, but I believe that he is the Negro who assaulted me. And again, remember, you know, three weeks ago, she doesn't know who attacked her. She can't make any identification, but because of the press, because of the media frenzy, because of basically the mass hysteria from the crowd, in her mind, she has been attacked by a black man. It's this black man. So another juror, and this isn't even a question from a juror. This is just someone in the jury box who stands up and screams, in God's name, Ms. Taylor, tell us positively, is that the guilty Negro? And the answer to that question, raising her left hand towards heaven, Nevada Taylor replies, listen to me, I would not take the life of innocent man, but before God, I believe that this is the guilty Negro. So, you know, she's making a big show out of it, and all hell breaks loose at this point in time. One of the jurors leaps out of the jury box and charges Ed Johnson, a juror tries to attack the defendant in court in trial wow oh my gosh it's, it's insane this is not how this is supposed to excuse me this is not how this is supposed to work oh uh, this isn't how you're experiencing things in the greater indianapolis days absolutely <laughs> not we uh with with all due respect to our <laughs> listeners in tennessee we are clearly a little bit more civilized <laughs> or at least we are in 2022 compared to how it was in 1909 um, but yeah, the, the juror, like, and, and again, remember, you've got lots of credit to the court reporter, lots of credit to the stenographer, because the stenographer is right. still taking down everything that's going on. That's how we know what's happening here. And the stenographer makes note that the juror who's trying to attack Ed Johnson apparently is shouting that if I could get at him, I would tear his heart out right here. So you have a juror who is now attempted to attack the defendant who has threatened to kill the defendant right there in the courtroom. And guess what happens to this juror? 
he gets sent right back to the jury room to continue the deliberations. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. As I'm sure you can guess, this is, again, the worst kept surprise in the history of anything. Ed Johnson gets convicted of rape. Um, Judge McReynolds informed the attorneys that he planned on sentencing Mr. Johnson to death. This is... This is before any argument whatsoever. There has literally just been a conviction entered, and the judge tells the defense attorneys, I am going to sentence your client to death. Like, there's no no arguments have been made. Literally, the judge just says, like, wow. yes, we're having a hanging. Unreal. So, um, you know, you know, they're, they're meeting, you know, Mr. Johnson meets with his attorneys. You know, at this point in time, they're beaten down. I mean, they've had... They've had 10 days to prepare a trial, mm -hmm. um, every attempt at Long getting days. more time, every attempt at getting cooperation, every attempt at moving it to somewhere where you might not, oh, I don't know, get attacked by a juror in the courtroom. All, uh, this, stuff yeah. is, all this stuff has been shot down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they meet with Mr. Johnson and they tell him that appealing the conviction will be a pointless waste of time. Um, and that the judge has already announced that he's going to be sentenced to death and he had two choices. He could basically die at the hands of the law or he could die at the hands of a mob. Those were his two options that were presented to him by his attorneys. Oh man. That's, that's what Mr. Johnson is facing. So the next day on the afternoon of February 9, 1906, Ed Johnson stands before Judge McReynolds to receive his sentence. Um, when he was asked if he had anything to say before the pronouncement of sentence, according to the court record, Mr. Johnson stood with his head high and said, the jury says that I am guilty, and I guess that I will have to suffer for what somebody else has done. I guess I will be punished for another person's crime. And... Following that statement, Judge McReynolds sentenced Ed Johnson to be hanged from the neck until dead on March 13, 1906, in the basement of the Hamilton County Courthouse, Chattanooga, Tennessee. So that was the background, the identification, the trial, and the condemnation of Ed Johnson. The, the probably the like I said, the guy who should be the central character in this. The central. Yeah. Character. Yeah. This Absolutely. is everything that's happened to him at this point. And, and less than a month earlier, he was, you know, doing his job on a Friday night, you know, at the bar or, or repairing roofs at the local church. I mean, exactly. this, he was, he was a working man uh, and, and just had his life totally flipped upside down based Absolutely. on what seemed to be, you know, the, the press stoking the fire and, and uh, false presumptions running forward with it. So Jack, uh, the big, the big conversation here, uh, the idea of a forgotten legal landmark in our conversation in United States versus Ship, is the fact that this this criminal case ends up in the Supreme Court. Right. I know we have a lot to get to with this conversation. Still, we we had mentioned at the beginning for our audience that this could be a two parter. I think we're leaning towards that a little bit. Why don't as we kind of bring we bring the conversation and the background of the conviction, the condemn, you know, the condemnation of Ed Johnson to a close, set us up for part two. Where does where does the Supreme Court step in, and where how do we how do we uh, you know leave our audience with a little maybe a glimmer of hope in what is has been a, a pretty pretty uh, gruesome story to begin with. 
Well, to kind of give everybody a preview for the next episode, um, which should finish the balance of the story, the next two people that we're going to meet are, again, two people that should be memorialized in the history of, of the legal profession. Um, Noah Pardon and Stiles, Stiles Hutchins um, are going to be the next attorneys who, who come into this case. And what uh, Mr. Pardon and Mr. Hutchins do is they figure out how to get this case into the federal court system using the Habeas Corpus Act of 1867. And um, a, a habeas corpus is, it's a petition that gets filed before a court. In this particular set of circumstances, it's specifically filed in the federal courts that argues that your incarceration is unconstitutional for one reason or another. There has been some sort of constitutional violation that has led to you being incarcerated, that has led to you being held. Um, and as a result, you need to let me go. It, it's a civil proceeding. Um, and this is where this is where the precedential value of United States versus ship comes in. Because the arguments that Mr. Pardon and Mr. Um, Hutchins were making, they were completely new arguments. The, the Habeas Corpus Act of 1867, no one knew what it did. It was a statute that had never been litigated. There, there, are, there are an astounding number of statutes that get passed at both state and federal level that never get examined by courts because there's never a reason for them to get in front of the court. This is the first time the Habeas Corpus Act had ever been cited or argued in a courtroom. And um, the glimmer of hope that comes along with this is the Supreme Court accepted their arguments and temporarily halted uh, the execution of Ed Johnson. And that's, that's probably the, the hopeful part that we can look at for our next episode is that the Supreme Court does step in, the Supreme Court does try, does try to stop the execution that was ordered by, by the judge and by Judge McReynolds in Chattanooga. Um, the rest of it we'll kind of go into in the next episode with, with what those mm -hmm. procedures were, how that process went, and ultimately what led to this case being a criminal case filed directly to the Supreme Court. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 precedential value portion of it will come in in part two, and the explanation for how we got to to where we are today with uh, with this as being a legal precedent. Right, and I'm excited to jump into part two with you, Jack, especially given that yes, this case, while while it is a forgotten legal landmark, boy, are there some fireworks in it to begin with. And then, of course, you know, I I want to I'm excited to peel back the curtain with you and dive into really the aftermath of all of this, what this means for not only trials similar to this as as history continued onward, but also the Supreme Court's involvement maybe in criminal cases and, and why maybe we don't see as many uh, beyond that case moving forward. So a lot to unpack in, in part two. Uh, really hope anybody that joined us today live on the Facebook live stream or, or if you are with us after the fact, please you know be sure to tune in to part two. We've got a lot of good a good stuff still remaining here in the United States for ship. But uh, Jack, uh, any any final thoughts on this uh, on this 
you know, really the, the story, I guess we should say really of Ed Johnson, the first part of this story, any final thoughts, uh, anything you want to leave our audience with before we wrap up today? Just again, um, it's tragic from start. It's tragic from start to finish. Um, what happened in Nevada Taylor was atrocious. It's horrible. Um, what happened to Ed Johnson is in a lot of ways worse. Um, I, I guess the, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess the thing that I would comment is um, the press has always been the bane of criminal defense trials. Um, we, we talked about that a little bit uh, with the mm-hmm. Rittenhouse case and some of the other major yeah. ones. Anytime the media gets their teeth into a, a case, it becomes so incredibly hard to mm-hmm. to actually see that justice is properly carried out. And again, major, major credit to Lewis Shepard for doing everything he was possible to making sure that Ed Johnson did get as good of a defense as he did. It would have been way mm-hmm. too easy to just allow yeah. the other two attorneys who had never handled a criminal case do this, but you know, he's, he's one of the unsung heroes in this for, for at least trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, Jack, really appreciate you and your time carving some time out of the day to, to be with us, to walk us through this first part of United States first ship. And Hey, looking forward to having you back on the next one and getting into part two here soon. Absolutely. Alrighty, look, and hey, we want to take one final moment, of course, as always, to thank you, our audience, for jumping aboard with us on the Facebook live stream or on YouTube or a podcasting platform. All the same, we appreciate you being here for the conversation today. If you did like the show, do me a favor, like it, comment, subscribe to it on whichever platform you're checking us out on, and then, of course, share this material with friends and family, anybody that you think would benefit from these criminal law-related discussions that Jack and I have each episode here on Closing Arguments. we got a lot of great stuff, including part two of United States first ship, you know, in the pipeline for you. We're looking forward to those conversations and we'd hate to have you miss out on anything great here in, in the near future. So for Mr. Jack Razumich, I'm Ryan Ruff. We're going to go ahead and say so long today. And we thank you so much for joining us on today's edition of Closing Arguments.